When we talk about chill hours, what exactly are we talking about? We're talking about how you can have better fruit production if you know what chill hours are all about. But as I'm very fond of saying, everything you know is wrong. And what we know about chill hours has come under scrutiny. And there are a lot of great studies going on to see if that is necessarily true anymore. Can you grow, for example, a high chill fruit in a low chill area? And what exactly is a chill? What the heck are we talking about? Let's talk to the guy, Tom Spellman, who's conducting experiments in Southern California growing high chill fruit trees. Tom Spellman's with Dave Wilson Nursery. He's our sales representative down in Southern California. And Tom, talk a little bit about the history of this plot that you have going. Sure, Fred. I'm, I'm one of the things that I am proud to be able to do through Dave Wilson Nursery is some experimental projects in Southern California's low chill areas. And, you know, I've been in this business for a long time. And over the past four decades, I've been getting people that have told me I have uh, a golden delicious apple in um, Orange County, or I have a a Waltana apple in Malibu, or, you know, uh, so on and so, Arkansas Black in in Costa Mesa. I used to tell these people that, you know, probably what you really have is is a variety that was mistagged. You have a variety that that you, you think is a high chill variety, but it's probably a low chill variety until I started to go around and meet with some of these people and look at what they were doing and what they were growing. And sure enough, I found uh, Arkansas black in Costa Mesa and and Waltana apple in Malibu and things that, that I couldn't explain. And this went on for the better part of two decades. And when I started working uh, some experimental projects at the South Coast Research and Extension Center in Irvine, California, so low chill Orange County. One of the things that I proposed to them was I would like to put in a block of high chill apple varieties on the on the Irvine Ranch project there and see if I can replicate some of these results that I've actually seen in person. And a couple of the people said, well, you know, that seems like a stretch. And and uh, I remember one uh, in, in particular uh, who said, well, Tom, what what happens if you fail? And I said, well, if I fail, nobody will ever hear a word about this <laughs> because I'm not going to publicize it. But if if it if it's successful, I think we can change the way people think about growing apples in in low chill zones. So they allowed me about a half acre plot to put in um, 30 different varieties of of high chill apple. These are varieties that would range from 500 plus hours to up to about 1100 hours and you have to understand on on the south coast research and extension center their average chill over the years has been less than 200 hours in fact we had um several years this project was put in in, in march of 2013 we've had several years where the chill accumulation was actually negative so we had, you know, more hours above 70 during that three-month period than we did hours below 45. In all of those years, Fred, from, from the, the second year in the ground, from the second break of dormancy, when we had a little bit of spur wood that, that had established itself, we've had fruit on 29 out of – or 28 out of the 30 varieties. So there, there are definitely some – that I don't think lend themselves quite as well. And it's not that they didn't produce any fruit, but they didn't produce a quality fruit. 
But we've had some real standouts in, in that program that have produced what I would consider, again, on low uh, size managed trees, no bigger than about seven feet tall and seven or eight feet wide. We've had very good sized crops of, of, of fruit and it's been tasty. It's colored up well. It, there hasn't been anything that was produced there that I thought was of inferior quality. So um, this project for me was a complete success, even to the point where they had uh, researchers coming out from you know the East Coast for or or the Midwest for other projects and and programs who basically said I've got to see this project. I don't believe it. I don't believe that you can do that you know, on Irvine uh, property in, in Southern California. So I had a lot of um, Apple experts and, and some real enthusiasts, people that understand apples much better than I do, that looked at that project and scratched their heads. They were just totally amazed at, at what we were able to do to the point where they were like, well, what are you doing? Are you are you icing this thing down in the <laughs> wintertime? And I'm like, no, this is, this is outdoor Irvine temperatures you know so we're getting anywhere from negative chill hours to uh, 50 or 75 or 100 or you know in a good year maybe 200 or 225 but we've had fruit every single year since the second break of dormancy which i i think was just an amazing project before we go on, and we'll come back and pick it up, we'll name some of those winners, but I want to insert, since the name of the show is Garden Basics, uh, an explanation of what chill hours is so that people don't get lost as we uh, get into the weeds here. Absolutely. All right. So, Tom, explain exactly what a chill hour is and why that's so important for fruit trees. Well, you know, there are a lot of ways that, that chill hours are uh, registered. So... Probably the most common model for, for chill hour registration is accumulation of fall and wintertime uh, chill hours between November 1st and January 31st. And that's a West Coast model. If you're, if you're in the Midwest or back East, your, your accumulation time is going to go out much longer than that. But on the West Coast, we're looking at 90 days. So, you know, November, November 1 to about January 31. And it would be accumulation of hours between 45, some say 50, 50 degrees, 45 degrees, down to right at freezing, down to 32. So very seldom, you know, in Southern California do we get much uh, below 32. So most of the time, those chill hours are, are accumulated between that period of time. And they are registered through um, like a CMOS uh, weather registration station or, um, you know, you could uh, just con contact your local weather service and find out what, what the local chill hour accumulation is. They normally keep pretty good records on. If you go to so, Dave, if you go to DaveWilson.com and you start looking at the lists of all the deciduous fruit trees, it usually tells you the recommended number of chill hours for this particular tree. And if you live back east or in the Midwest and you're growing fruit trees, chill isn't that big a concern. You're probably going to get the 1,000 hours or 1,500 hours between November and February or longer uh, for that really great tasting apple. Here in the Sun Belt, uh, it could vary. Like in Southern California, 200 chill hours is not uncommon. Up here in Northern California, 
It used to be 800 to 1,000. Now it's more like 400 to 800. Every year is a little bit different, but we're seeing those chill hours go down. And then there's the, the negative chill hours, and that's actually more of a chill unit uh, situation where you're taking into consideration how warm it's also getting during the day. Absolutely. So the, the, um, the, the situation is if you have daytime temps that are registering above 70 degrees, which is not uncommon in, in throughout California during those, uh, during that 90 day period, then that actually takes away from chill. So you could have a, a 10 chill hour night and have, um, you know, an eight hours during that next day that are above 70 that are actually going to, you know, steal eight of your 10 chill hours. So, that that's why I can I can say that we've had years that were negative chill. We still had hours that were below 45 or 50, but we had more hours that were above 70 during that 90 day period than were below that 45 or 50 degree number. So you know, n- negative is absolutely possible. It's not it's not pretty. We don't like it. Uh, I'm I'm not big on on 80 degrees in uh, in December or January, <laughs> but it's not uncommon. Explain why a fruit tree, a deciduous fruit tree, needs that cold period. That's that's like a good night's sleep, Fred. You know, they they are going to wake up in the spring and they're going to bloom and they're going to set their fruit and they're going to do their work through the spring and early summer when they when they mature that fruit and put on some some structure and then that fruit's harvested later on in the summer and then those trees begin to get tired in the fall. You've got that old foliage. Now you've got daylight hours that are getting shorter. As the daylight hours get shorter, the trees get tired. They start to drop some foliage. They go into October, November, early December, and they go completely dormant. And that's when you would consider that that tree is asleep. So, you know, it, it is accumulating those chill hours during that winter time period. It, you know, if you if you allow it, to go into uh, a good dormancy, then it gets a good night's sleep. Then it it's going to wake up happy. It's going to do its job efficiently and and have a good season. But if if the chill hours are are rough, if the if the tree doesn't get a good winter sleep, then it's not going to be effective when it wakes up and blooms and and needs to do its work in the spring. And and there are certainly other ways that you can help to achieve that dormancy you know i mean what there are two things that we have no control over and one is the daylight hour sequence you know every year june 21st is going to be the longest day december 21st or right around there is going to be the shortest day so that's that's when we're getting supposedly a cooler season you know in, in december when we only have eight daylight hours instead of july when we have 13 or 14 sometimes we want to we want to allow that tree to get that good night's sleep and and go dormant. So we have no control over that. That's going to happen the same time every year, like clockwork. No changes. Now you would think within that same period of time that you would get the coolest weather, but that doesn't always happen. We don't always get you know 40s and 50s and and 60s during those those cool days. We can have warm days, you know, at, at the same period of time. But in general, we're going to get our cooler days during the shortest daylight hours. So we really don't have any control over that either, but it varies. It's, it's, it's not a constant like, like the daylight hours itself. It is something that varies from year to year. Now, what we do have control over is how we irrigate and how we feed. So if you're, if you're feeding too late into the season, 
if you're feeding in September and October and November and you're using a higher nitrogen fertilizer, that tree is going to have a hard time going dormant to begin with. And now you're, it, that's like going to Starbucks at 11 p.m. and getting your uh, Vente Frappuccino with an extra shot of espresso and expecting to go home and go to sleep. You don't, you, you don't want to sleep. You know, the tree doesn't want to sleep either. So we've got to cut off fertilizing early in the season. We've got to stop fertilizing by about the end of June. Mm. You know, you want to feed early, starting January, February, feed in, again in April, feed again in June, and then be done with it. So it's like a six months on and six months off. And and the later you feed in the summer, the more difficult time you're going to have in achieving that that dormancy or that good winter sleep for that tree. Same with irrigation. You want to start to lighten up a little bit as we get into that late summer. And I know it's still hot. It still can be bloody hot in, in August and September and October, but that's the time when you want to start to hold back a little bit to allow those terminal buds on that tree to, to, to set and, and start into uh, a dormant season. It's not going to go dormant yet, but you don't want that vigorous flush of growth into October and November. One of the reasons that high chill apple varieties are so popular is they just taste so dang good. What are the the high chill apples that you tested down there in Southern California that are just so dang good? Well, I'll go over about ten of them, and that's so that's one third of of the total project. And these are varieties that I can you know highly recommend in Southern California coastal and inland valleys where they get nowhere near the chill that would be needed. So the first one was an old favorite of mine called Arkansas Black. And Arkansas Black is a very, very um, firm textured apple. I mean, to the point where some people have a hard time biting into an Arkansas Black. You might have to slice it, but it's very firm texture. It's a very um, highly colored, you know, almost a pure white variety inside. The exterior color is dark, dark, dark red, almost to the point where it almost looks like it's a black apple. And, you know, this is one of those varieties that is a multi-purpose use. You can use it in cooking. You can use it in, in ciders. You can use it for, uh, you know, baking, for pies. You can also just eat it fresh off the tree. So it, it's a great late-season variety. And, and one of the things that, that all of these higher chill varieties had in common is they were almost all mid-late season to late season. So they in, in, in the project there in Irvine, these varieties were ripening up on the tree as early as the end of August or you know or, or early September, but holding on the tree until well into winter and into the point where we, we were having to strip the remaining apples off in mid-January when we were doing our winter pruning. <laughs> so, you know, we had apples really for four months that, that were hanging on the trees and just getting better and better and better as as time went on. So Arkansas Black is, is one that I would highly, highly recommend. I think it's a variety that I've seen around Southern California. I've always seen it as a successful variety. And and it was it was one of the first varieties that I wanted to include in that Irvine trial. And I would have to say that it is definitely, you know, in in, in the top four or five varieties that I had in that project. So that's a that's a good one to go with. Another one that I really liked was uh, Cox Orange Pippin. And, you know, Pippins are, are hard, hard to find in the market anymore. It's very seldom that you'll go in and find anything except for commodity varieties. So being able to grow a 
delicious piece of fruit like Cox Orange Pippin in an area that where people thought they could never do it before, that's that's huge. It's a it's a nice variety again starting up in late September and holding right up until January on on the tree and just getting better and better as time went on. And that's a tree, a, a variety that does well throughout uh, most of the United States. I think like USDA zones four through eight. <laughs> now all yep. of a sudden we're talking zone nine. We're talking zone nine and even, you know, uh, you could almost cross some of that area over into maybe what they would call a zone 10. Hmm. So it's it's definitely um, a, a variety that impressed me. Another one that, you know, I've never been a fan of when you buy it in the market. And it's, and it's a commodity variety. It's a commodity that you'll find in the market throughout most of the year. And that was Golden Delicious. Golden Delicious, oftentimes when you buy it in the market, it almost tastes like the box that it was shipped and stored in. <laughs> uh, it has kind of a cardboard, mealy texture to it. And I, I've just never been impressed with the variety. But it was one that I that I had previously seen in Southern California. And was recommended by a couple of friends of mine, and I thought, hey, I, I can't I can't judge fruit by what you can oftentimes buy in the market because it's it's cold stored for so long because they want to display it, you know, all the time. They want to have that same three by three piece of countertop, you know, with golden delicious apples and red delicious right next to it, and uh, Brayburn or Gala or Fuji or something else right next to that. So. I, I, I decided to put it in and I thought I'm not I'm not gonna judge it by what you buy in the market. I'm gonna let it let it do its thing and see what it does. And you know again, tree holding time probably three months did really well was was able to pick by mid-September and holding until until January. So good quality fruit, nice color, bright, bright golden color and um, very crispy crunchy texture, you know, much, much different than anything that you would have ever purchased uh, in, in the market. Now, uh, I'm not saying that you can't go up to Wenatchee, Washington and, and find a roadside stand with uh, fresh, golden, delicious at the end of September. And they're probably every bit as delicious as, as, as what we grew there in Irvine. But you're not going to find it in the grocery store. Right. But you can grow it in your backyard in areas where People never thought that they could do it before. I, I have become a fan of Golden Delicious Apple. I would like to offer a warning to people. Please do not judge the quality of fruit by what you are tasting from purchases at the grocery store. If you can, get it at a farmer's market. Even better, grow it in your backyard. You will never go back. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think a couple other standouts. Um, one of them, and this is probably my second favorite variety out of this whole collection of, of 30 is it's an old fashioned variety called Hudson's Golden Gem. Uh, a good friend of mine who I've known for many years in the nursery business told me his last name happens to be Hudson. And he told me that, you know, I I had to put this variety into my yard in, in coastal San Diego. And I put it into my yard back in the 1980s and it's produced reliable fruit for me ever since. So I had to include Hudson's Golden Gem. The, the fruit was, I wouldn't say it was exceptionally large. I would say it was medium to medium small in size, but profuse uh, bearing. I mean, it just loaded up with fruit. And, and we, we, we started in our fourth year of the project, we started thinning because we had so many clusters that were blooming and, and setting, you know, six, eight, ten fruit in a cluster. So we started thinning all the fruit down to two. 
Um, but this is one that I actually went in a couple of years ago and thinned down to one because I couldn't get the fruit size up to quite where I wanted it. And that, that made a difference. But what really made the difference to me was the flavor. I mean, this was just an absolutely wonderful variety. And, and again, it's an old cider variety. It's a variety that you could use to make um, um, apple pies. It's a variety that you could just eat fresh. And, and when I start to think of um, big, you know, I, I mean, big fruit has never really impressed me. Big fruit is something they can get more money for than, than small fruit. But when you look at where the market's going with things like that, if you look at cuties and halos mandarins and you start looking at at some of the things that they're marketing in a smaller size are cherry plums or um the pluary varieties are a good example of that you know they're they're golf ball size or, or ping pong ball size but they're just flavor packed and just absolutely delicious so this i think would be a great variety and and you know would would store very well in not necessarily even in a refrigerator but in a cool uh, dry, you know, closet space or something like that. I think you could store it for several months through the winter. And what a great variety to put into kids' lunches. And I mean, if, if I would have had fruit like that when I was a kid, I don't think I would have ever eaten a Snickers bar. <laughs> it was just absolutely wonderful. The Hudson's Golden Gem Apple, and in its uh, native Oregon, I would think uh, they were probably getting a thousand chill hours up there for that, and yet you're finding it growing in an area that gets about two hundred or less hours. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think it was rated at at eight or nine hundred, you know, in in our variety description, and and just did exceptionally well. And you know, there are others. Uh, King David did great. Waltana did great. Waltana's a an old Albert Eder variety from uh, up in Northern California there that was hybridized probably back in the 19 teens or twenties. And uh, Albert Eder came up with some wonderful apple varieties up, up in the Sonoma area there. And, and some of them that we, we still see today, but I think Waltana is one big, large fruit, beautiful greenish yellow color. And, and again, you could use it for baking or you could use it just for eating fresh. It almost had a, kind of a cider-like flavor just to take a bite out of a fresh piece of fruit off the tree. And I, I really find that appealing. I'm I'm so into varieties that have individual flavor characteristics. I, I don't want them to taste like the next variety and the next variety and the next variety. And so often, that's what we buy in, in the grocery store, where some of these old-fashioned selections had all kinds of different flavor attributes that we just don't find. What's interesting, too, about the Hudson Golden Gem Apple, it is reportedly resistant to scab, mildew, and fire blight. Did you find that growing any of these varieties in a low-chill area changed uh, former resistances to some of these pest and disease issues? No, I don't think so, Fred. I I think um, I, I was very lucky to be on a piece of property that, wasn't completely developed uh, around it at the time. So there was really there was really almost no inoculum for fire blight in the area. I had very, very little issue with fire blight over the years. And I, I tried to run this program looking at, at, at a backyard grower's perspective. I didn't want to come in and, and spray. I, I didn't even do a dormant spray on this program. So, the, you know, the only thing that... Um, we ever did was uh, keep the trees pruned, keep the trees whitewashed to protect them against sunburn. And when we did our, our winter pruning, we would use um, a hose and a high pressure nozzle and just keep the trees 
blasted out. If there was any scale or any mealybug or any uh, woolly aphid or something, we just kind of wash it off the off the structure. But I had almost no insect or disease problem or presence uh, through the through the whole term of that project. So wow, that's amazing. I, I think I think if you can you know if you can grow under conditions like that where you can keep things controlled, um, you know, a little bit of high pressure water makes a huge difference in in how trees perform just to keep those trees clean and keep those scale and mealy bugs and things, you know, washed out of those, uh, tight crotches. And, and, you know, you, you definitely, uh, can control 90% of your creepy crawly insect issues just by keeping those trees clean. You can find more of Tom's picks at DaveWilson.com. Just click on the Home Garden tab at the top of the page and then click on Fruit Variety Recommendations. And you can find Tom's picks uh, that are winners for the Low Chill Southwest and a lot more information about how to grow fruit trees and, and, and much, much more. It's a very informative website, DaveWilson.com. Tom Spellman, congratulations, and I uh, can't wait to taste some of those high chill fruits. Thank you, Fred. Always a pleasure. I, I probably enjoyed this project more than any other project I've, I've done there, just because so many people told me you're going to fail with it, <laughs> and and I I just knew that I wasn't. I just knew that it was gonna it was gonna work, and and I think I opened a lot of people's eyes. <laughs> 